This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. So much is going on around vaccinations right now. Measles outbreaks on the coasts and here in Colorado, efforts to change the fact that the state is dead last when it comes to vaccination rates for kindergartners. A bill that's about to get its first hearing aims to make it harder for parents to exempt children. All this news prompted Tony Freed of Denver to ask a question through Colorado Wonders. What is Colorado's policy on mandatory vaccinations and how did it evolve? This isn't an abstract issue for Freed. She says both her uncles contracted polio before there was a vaccine for it. My uncle Bob was severely impacted by it. It really debilitated him and crippled him for life. It's such a horrible disease, and it can impact you in so many ways. It wasn't just the paralysis, but it was all kinds of things. It was his eyesight, part of his hearing. And then I have another uncle who got it, and he did have some paralysis, but he was able to function much better. Freed says her father was a doctor and that her family got every available vaccine, law or no law. Let's dig into the history with Stephanie Wasserman. She's executive director of the Colorado Children's Immunization Coalition. Thank you for being with us, Stephanie. You're welcome. And why don't we start with polio in the mid-1950s? How does that chapter play out in Colorado? Well, in the U.S., one of the worst epidemics of polio happened in the early 50s. In 1952, there were close to 60,000 cases. And my older sisters were born during the last large outbreak of polio. And there was nothing that struck greater fear in parents' minds than the fear of having their child contract polio. And in 1952, that was the same year that Dr. Jonas Salk was successful at developing a potentially life-saving, safe, injectable vaccine against polio. First, Dr. Salk tested the vaccine with about 15,000 local school children in Pittsburgh. And then they saw success and they decided they wanted to design a much larger scale field trial. And that meant 1.8 million children, including 15,000 from Colorado, they were called polio pioneers, received the vaccine. It also included Canada and Finland, but mostly U.S. children. And they found great success with the vaccine. It actually was the first time they used what was called a double-blind research protocol. Oh, really? So, like, some kids got it and some didn't? Mm Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. Yes. And that becomes now the gold standard for how to do research. And they saw that it was an incredibly effective vaccine. Now, this was a trial program. I suspect it was voluntary or were kids forced to participate? No, they were not forced. It was all voluntary. But parents were so scared of polio that they volunteered their children in droves. I imagine there were some parents that that opted out, but parents were so excited. And it actually was what launched the March of Dimes. It's funny you mentioned the March of Dimes. Mm -hmm. It shows up in this old ad we found starring Elvis Presley. You ain't not Hey, kids, could I talk to you for about 30 seconds? Uh, This is Elvis Presley. If you believe polio is beaten, I ask you to listen. Remember me. Now, that's the voice of thousands who know the fight against polio is just as tough as it ever was. They're crippled, and the salt vaccine can't help them recover. But you can. Remember polio victims. Join the 1957 March of Dimes today. 
Here's another clip. This is from Dade County, Florida, back in the day. Uh, in the video from YouTube, you can see kids, members of the military taking the doses, I guess drinking the vaccine from a little white paper cup. A vaccine against polio, only it's taken just like medicine. The Florida Attorney General started the ball rolling in the mass distribution. It's cherry-flavored, so there's no difficulty with kiddies. Everybody under 40 in Dade County is going to take it. That's half a million in the biggest mass test of a polio vaccine ever held. It's a nice drink, and the young citizens had time off from lessons to take it. This was often administered in schools, correct? Yes, it was. They lined children up and gave them the vaccine. We'll post both of those videos to CPR.org. Were there reports of bad outcomes? I mean, it was an experiment of such a massive scale. Well, there's one very famous historical event that happened called the Cutter Incident, where there was a batch of badly manufactured vaccine. Cutter refers to the lab that produced the bad batch. Uh, 200 children were paralyzed in some way and 10 were killed. Yeah, but it also launched the beginning of what is now the safest vaccine monitoring system and manufacturing system in the world. Once the polio vaccine was uh, demonstrated to be so effective, did Colorado mandate that kids get it? No, they didn't. When you talk about mandates, you're really just talking about school-required immunizations. There's no mandates in the U.S. for anyone to get a vaccine. Right. This is the the sort of price of entry for going into school or like licensed child care. And there's actually some requirements around health care workers. So that's where the requirement comes. Interestingly, the first state that required vaccinations for school entry was Massachusetts, and that was back in 1855 during smallpox epidemic. At what point does Colorado come along and say, that's a good idea, let's adopt that? it, it took a while. Slowly, other states started adopting these laws by the 60s, so 1960s, more than 100 years, still only about 20 states had these laws on the books, and they were unevenly enforced. By the 70s, there were about half the states had these laws and half didn't. And there was kind of this opportunity for a natural experiment. And researchers saw that among the states that did have school-required immunization laws in place, they had 50% less rates of measles. So it was seen that having school-required immunization laws in place were an effective way to stop transmission. But by that point, Colorado still hadn't No, made it wasn't until 1978 that Colorado enacted the first school-required immunization laws. And then by 1980, all 50 states had them in place. Now, Colorado has exemptions. Yes, and that went into effect with the very first passage of that law. Ah, so the medical, the religious, and the personal belief exemptions were baked into Colorado's original law. Yes. It's as old as that. As old as that. Okay. And on top of that, it also happens to be one of the most lenient ways for claiming that exemption. We learned uh, elsewhere on this program that you can essentially download a form from online and exempt yourself. With a signature. The state has made further revisions uh, in terms of immunizations in recent years. 
The only thing that's changed with the law significantly over the years is this recent requirement that all schools and childcare report their immunization and exemption rates annually to the state health department. And this and is how we can tell. It's almost a, a map, if you will, of where kids are vaccinated and where they are under vaccinated. Yeah. And that's been such an important public health tool, because if you look at our overall state rates, we're doing OK. But it's really when you drill down into the local communities where you see that we have such wide variation across counties, schools, and licensed child care facilities. In fact, there are 18 counties in Colorado that have immunization rates of below 60% for infants. And most of those counties are in rural communities. And then when you look even closer, of those, about seven have immunization rates less than 50 percent. Less than 50 percent. The one thing about vaccinations that's so important to understand is they're the most effective through this concept of herd immunity or community immunity, which means that the community needs to maintain these high rates of vaccination and pockets of unvaccinated kids really put the whole community at risk. So in your view, is Colorado primed for an outbreak? Yes, absolutely. The data has shown this over and over again. And in fact, experts have said it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. Uh, you can hear a conversation with one such expert uh, at CPR.org from Children's Hospital, Colorado. Why are some exemptions so high in pockets in Colorado? As I said before, the way that parents can claim a philosophical exemption is very easy. And we're also one of only a few states left that have this option. And consequently, when it's easy, that results in high rates. And we do think that there's an element of convenience, like parents are very busy and they forget to bring their paperwork in or they forget to actually get their children immunized. And so it's a convenience loophole that we're trying to close. And it's this concept of equal effort. It shouldn't be easier to claim an exemption in Colorado than it is to get a vaccine. What world do school nurses play? I feel like they just have not been talked about a lot in this discussion. And yeah. I don't know if it's like directly administering the drug, or if it's just keeping on top of kids and families. Yeah, so school nurses play a critical role. They're responsible for documenting the immunization status of a child and then making sure that when kids aren't vaccinated, that they have a process in place where they can get vaccinated or that they have claimed an exemption. So they're responsible for all the documentation, but also they're the first line of discussion between a parent and explaining why it is so important to be immunized. Of course, we know that there aren't enough school nurses. Yes, days. and we've we've our data has shown that the presence of a, a school nurse is correlated with high immunization rates. We do think that there's clearly other issues around access in Colorado, why we've made great strides with making sure more children are on Medicaid and the Affordable Care Act has included vaccines as a benefit. There's still many people in Colorado that struggle with either getting insurance or finding a usual source of care. So we really want to address access as well. Uh, but Stephanie Wasserman, executive director of the Colorado Children's Immunization Coalition, there's obviously distrust in these communities as well, compounded for some by a 2011 Supreme Court ruling that parents can't sue drug makers if their child has an adverse reaction. 
What was that about? That dates back to a law that was passed in the 80s, which recognized that even the threat of litigation can drive up health care costs in the very rare instance that there was an outcome. And vaccines are safe and effective. In fact, every year in the U.S., 33,000 lives are saved, 14 million cases of diseases are averted, and the country saves 9.9 billion dollars in health direct health care costs. That doesn't include things like days off of work due to illness. I think your point is it's not as if there's never an adverse reaction, but that in comparison to the benefit, that is so outweighed in your mind. Yeah. So according to the CDC, for every million doses of vaccines that are distributed, one person may be compensated through a program that's set up through that court decision and that law that was passed in the 80s. We now have what may be another milestone in Colorado's vaccine timeline. A governor, Jared Polis, who has said he supports childhood vaccinations, he gets his own kids vaccinated, but is skeptical of eliminating or tightening those exemptions statewide. The Aurora Sentinel reported that Governor Polis raised the idea of allowing county health departments to play a major role in vaccinations. I guess the idea of customizing some of this locally. Do you know if that approach has been tried elsewhere? No, no other state has tried that approach. And while local public health departments have a critical role in providing vaccines, especially to underserved communities, they're not set up to both promulgate rules around this. To be the sort of arbiters and the enforcers. And the science and the data show that you really need a statewide approach to maintaining those high immunization rates. Otherwise, it'll exacerbate these pockets that make everybody vulnerable to an outbreak. Do you think that vaccines are a victim of their own success? Absolutely. Young parents right now live in an era where they haven't seen the devastating consequences of polio or even measles. There's a lot of young healthcare professionals that have never seen a case of measles. So that looks like it's beginning to change. <laughs> right. So I've actually talked to a young parent who said, you know, oh, polio, that's that's really not a scary disease. And it's so long ago and far away. And these diseases are actually all a plane ride away. They can come roaring back. And we just need to stay vigilant. Stephanie, thanks for your time. Thank you. You're welcome. Stephanie Wasserman is executive director of the Colorado Children's Immunization Coalition, a bill that's about to get its first hearing aims to make it harder for parents to exempt children. So what do you wonder about in Colorado? Let us know through Colorado Wonders at CPR.org. Denver's camping ban means someone living on the streets can't use anything for shelter like blankets or a tent. Activists have tried to overturn that law since the city council passed it in 2012. Well, soon the issue goes to the voters as Initiative 300 on the ballot. Should it be legal for someone to live in Denver's public spaces? If it passes, it would be the first of its kind in the country. And it comes as many big cities grapple with rising homelessness. CPR's Michael Elizabeth Sackis reports. 
Around a dozen tents line the sidewalk at 27th and Arapahoe in front of an empty lot in the Curtis Park neighborhood. Christopher Zeno is raking away leaves from his spot, which he shares with his fiance. They set up here just before the bomb cyclone snowstorm in mid-March. We had already stayed outside um, with nothing, no coverage, just a sleeping, one sleeping bag for two people outside in the snow. Zeno says the two tried to find a shelter, but since they're not married, they couldn't find a place to stay together. And for safety, they don't like to be apart. The street camp has grown to around 22 residents, but this is the exact thing Denver's urban camping ban outlaws. Police have shown up to tell the group they'll have to move on this week. Zeno says it makes life on the streets harder. When you're playing this game called cat and mouse with the police getting swept, being pushed everywhere and whatnot, you're getting no sleep. You're not able to look for work. You're not able to get things done. You're not able to save. Zeno's experience on the streets is what the Right to Survive Initiative 300 campaign wants to stop. The group Denver Homeless Out Loud formed out of the fight against the camping ban seven years ago. When the city wouldn't budge, activists got enough signatures to get Initiative 300 on the ballot. Therese Howard is with the group. She says there are two things she wants from this moment, to get Denverites more involved in the issue of homelessness. And secondly, to have the hope that uh, the people of Denver will uh, support our rights and will, you know, take that kind of stand. To Howard, the rights are simple. People should be allowed to rest and take shelter in public spaces. That means any place that people are currently trying to survive that's public space is a place where people will continue to try to survive. So that camp along the sidewalks in Curtis Park, where Zeno lives, that would be legal. Shelters next to the Platte River, legal. Tents and blankets in parks, legal. The green space between a house or apartment complex and the street, fair game. If the area is open to the public and the shelter isn't blocking walkways, a person could live there. Howard hopes that if the city can't hide homelessness, it will be forced to make big changes. When people are seen, there there isn't this illusion that you can just push them out of homelessness. Denver Homeless Out Loud surveyed more than 500 people experiencing homelessness in the city. Many said because of the camping ban, they tend to use a more hidden, less safe sleeping spot to avoid police. Some said they won't cover themselves, even when it's cold outside, so they won't fit the definition of camping. These are all very unseen effects of this law. It's about police enforcement of visible poverty and using this pressure to push people around. Supporters of the camping ban argue it doesn't do that. Police don't ticket or arrest someone simply for being homeless. It's if they refuse to move on. Chris Connor is the director of Denver's Road Home, the city's office on homelessness strategy. He says the camping ban tries to create opportunities to help people. If we're going to have interactions from the get-go through police, uh, we need to be challenged ourselves to make sure they're as productive as possible. That's why police are now sometimes paired with a behavioral health specialist when responding to situations on the street. They say the goal is to connect people to services and shelter rather than ticket or arrest them. Connor believes if 300 passes, those interactions will be limited. One specific situation he worries about, a person sleeping on a park bench looks a lot like a person overdosing on a park bench. Drug overdoses are the top killer of people experiencing homelessness. My main fear about the Right to Survive initiative is that it may actually prevent needed life-saving intervention. Connor thinks checking on the welfare of the person on the park bench could be considered harassment, and that's not allowed under Initiative 300. Therese Howard with Denver Homeless Out Loud insists the initiative wouldn't get in the way of that kind of help. But the language of 300 is broad and open to interpretation. Melissa Drazen-Smith is with the city attorney's office. 
She says 300's language is so general, she doesn't know whether it will override other laws that might impact a person's right to rest, like a park curfew. A court is going to have to determine that. A group called Together Denver has formed to oppose Initiative 300. They've raised more than $1.5 million to fight it, nearly 20 times what the right to survive people have. Backers include the Downtown Denver Partnership, the Chamber of Commerce, and the Denver Metro Association of Realtors. The group is worried about the impact on the city's open spaces, residential areas, and business districts. Jeff Shoemaker is the executive director of the Greenway Foundation, which works to revitalize the South Platte River. He's with Together Denver and fears Initiative 300 will hurt the environment. Understand unchecked human waste every day. It is a river killer. It's a park killer. And it is a homeless abandonment nightmare. Together Denver also argues Initiative 300 doesn't help people experiencing homelessness. They say it isn't healthy or safe for people to sleep outside. And the initiative would normalize that lifestyle. The Denver Homeless Leadership Council agrees. The group is made up of leaders from organizations like the Colorado Coalition for the Homeless and the Denver Rescue Mission. They believe 300 could institutionalize encampments and street homelessness, so they won't endorse it. Shoemaker with Together Denver argues Initiative 300 would make Denver less safe for everyone. I think it's a health crisis for this city. Those that vote for 300 don't understand that it's one of the most heartless and most damaging, whether it's societal or environmental, measures. Both sides agree that Initiative 300 is not a solution to homelessness. The opposition says revoking the camping ban doesn't move the city any closer to getting people off the streets. Those that support 300 say that's true, but the city isn't doing enough, fast enough, for the people already on the streets. And they believe the camping ban makes the situation worse. Whatever happens in May, both sides say that the bigger problem will still need to be solved. I'm Michael Elizabeth Sackis, CPR News. Victoria Erickson of Denver chose the day she would die in September of 2018. Ovarian cancer and chemotherapy had left the 66-year-old weakened, nauseous, and in pain. So she decided to take advantage of Colorado's aid-in-dying law, but only after waiting months to obtain and fill the necessary prescriptions. Erickson's wife, Cheryl Garcia, wrote us wanting to share her family's experience after some of our recent coverage of aid in dying. And Cheryl, welcome to the program. Thank you. Your late wife, Victoria, retired from a long career as a nurse practitioner. And you wrote that uh, while her actual passing was peaceful, almost beautiful, the lead-up was anything but... We'll get into that, but tell us how she came to the decision to use medical aid in dying. Well, Victoria and I had always talked about, you know, how we didn't want to suffer, and this is way before the law ever passed. And so we'd always talked about, gee, we wish that, that it would pass and that um, if we had to, we'd go to Switzerland. And so I knew that this was something that she wanted to. So when we went and um, she was diagnosed with cancer, um, the first meeting we had with the oncologist, at that moment, she told him that she was not going to suffer a long time, that that's something that she wanted to do. Tell us about the type of cancer and how aggressive it was. She, um, When she was diagnosed, it was um, with stage 4 ovarian cancer, and it was somewhat of a rare kind of cancer. Um, I'm not a medical professional, so I don't know all that detail. I just um, did not respond to surgery, and it did not respond very well to chemotherapy. What was the doctor's reaction when you expressed fairly early on 
that you didn't want this to be drawn out, to be painful and prolonged. Well, he, um, that of course was on our first appointment with him. And he said, well, you know, we have a long way to go. I think I can, I think we're going to get you uh, cured. Into a better place. Right. That did did not occur. Right. When did she know it was time to seek out a doctor who'd help with medical aid in dying? Um, we, uh, she had chemotherapy for six months, and then for a couple more months, she had some other infusions. And um, then she started getting really nauseous and very, very sick, and the doctor said, it's time for hospice. And, and hospice, you know, means that you're going to die within six months. And so that's when I knew we needed to start moving on it. What was her quality of life at that point? She was very, very tired, um, really not a whole lot of life. She spent most of her time sitting in her chair. Um, she was a little bit confused every now and then, trouble with the calendar, that kind of thing. And I just think being nauseous all the time has to be such a terrible way to live. Oh, it was awful. Um, as I said, she was in hospice, and they set her up with a, a little battery pack that gave her a constant drip of pain medication and um, anti-nausea medication to help her through the day. But it was it was a constant battle. What did you have to do to find a doctor and get a prescription? So I started um, as soon as she was in hospice. And I thought, well, certainly there must be a directory of some place to go find a doctor. And I didn't. It took me three weeks to finally... Um, stop looking that way. And I went to um, our oncologist who, of course, couldn't couldn't help us because he was our doctor. And his nurse practitioner is the one that found us the doctor. This was a little bit like the grapevine. You, yes. you kind of had to find yes. someone who knew someone who knew someone. Right. And, and let me just be clear that Colorado law requires that two doctors certify someone has a maximum of six months to live, is competent to make an informed decision, and is able to self-administer the drugs. So you found the first doctor, then you had to find a second doctor, right? Well, no. Um, what happened was is that... Um, you know, it took us th- me three weeks to cave in, and then it took another three weeks for that nurse practitioner to get us a doctor. And um, when we met with that doctor, she already knew Victoria's history because she was part of the practice that we had been in. So she made arrangements on our first meeting to actually um, for us to meet with both doctors at one time. At the same time. Yeah. That was a time saver, I yes, imagine. Yes, yes. Um, but you were looking for something uh, official, some place to go that you could look this up. Right. The law had been in place for some time by that point. Right. I went online. I went to Death with Dignity. I went to a number of websites. I thought, surely there's a directory, you know, and I, I didn't find anything. What was this like for you emotionally, oh. mentally? It was it was brutal because, you know, she wasn't able to really do a lot of this herself. And so I would help her and I would make phone calls. And, you know, I kept thinking, my God, here I am um, trying to find someone who is going to give us a prescription to end her life. And I wanted to hold on to her forever. I mean, it is just it's it's just really, really brutal as the loved one who's going to do that. You're trying to honor her wishes, but also be mindful of your own. Right. To keep her around. And be a caretaker, you know. 
You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're hearing about one family's experience with Colorado's still relatively new aid in dying law. Cheryl Garcia joins us. Uh, her late wife, Victoria Erickson, availed herself of medical aid in dying drugs. And uh, how was it to find and fill uh, the series of prescriptions needed? Well, when we met with the doctor, um, I, we brought a friend of ours who was a nurse practitioner also. And so we sat down, the four of us, and really went over. They they gave us a list of what the options were of drugs. And we selected the one. And she said, OK, well, it'll take me a little bit to get that prescription written for you. But there's essentially a menu of options. Correct. How, how did you decide on which option? Um, you know, Victoria, being a healthcare professional and our friend, we decided decided that we wanted to go with the one that seemed to have the quickest results. Hmm. Um, not the cheapest, but the quickest. Was it an expensive affair? Extremely expensive. Um, Would you tell us how much? $3,300. For all of the medications? Yes. And just briefly, could you describe the medications you chose and what the sort of series was? Um, yes. So we chose to use sequel and then there's a drug that goes with it that you you take an hour before, and that kind of slows your heart down. And then it's the actual sequel that ends the life. Okay. And the doctor said, it's going to take me a while to, to what, find this, to get the prescription filled Well, out? we didn't know that, and she didn't know that. You know how long? She said it'll be, you should be able to pick it up in a couple of days. Well, when I called to see if it was ready, they the pharmacist told me, oh, it's this drugs. And I said, no, wait a minute. That's not what we ordered. Well, it turns out that the manufacturer, this is the way I understand it, that the manufacturer of sequel had stopped making it, was selling the rights to somebody else. And so we were stuck right in the middle. So it wasn't really available anywhere here. She had to find it. And so we had to wait and wait and wait for her to locate a script and then get it. And time is of the essence in these cases because the drug has to be self-administered. That is, the person has to be healthy enough, even though they're terminal, to take the drugs themselves, able-bodied in a way and able-minded, frankly. That's correct. And that was – we were up against um, the clock because Victoria was failing very fast. Um, and we were afraid we weren't going to get the drug in time for her to administer it herself. Was it hard to get a pharmacy that would fulfill the scripts? No, the doctor took care of that for us. I see. Okay. Um, once you had the medication in hand, how did you and Victoria feel? I wonder if just the, the possession of it was, was changing in any way. I think it made her feel much more calm. Um, it did not do that for me. It made me extremely anxious because I knew that the end was very close and I just didn't want to lose her. Uh, what would you tell us about Victoria's death about that day? Well, she had picked uh, 9-11. We picked 9-11 together because it's such an awful day anyway. We figured, what the heck, 9-11. And she had decided that she wanted to start the process at 9 o'clock in the morning. And so we had decided that some friends were going to – four friends were going to be there with us, two couples. And they arrived at 8.30 because the drug the drug description said it could take anywhere from an hour to 21 hours for her to pass. Wow. Yeah. That's a yeah. window. My goodness. So they came and they knew at that point I had no food in the house, nothing. I was just like existing. So they brought food thinking that it was going to be an all-day affair. 
And um, so at 8.30, I went in and woke her up, and I said, the girls are here. Do you, would you like to come in and have, you know, see them? And she looked at me, and she said, the girls are here? And I said, yeah. And she said, let's get going. So she was ready. She was enthusiastic? She was. She was. Was she, was she happy, do you think, at that point? This is this doesn't sound well, I suppose, but I think she was. I think she felt at peace. Let's put it that way. Mm. She felt at peace. So you turned this into something of a, I don't, this isn't quite the right word, but a social event. In other words, you wanted to have loved ones around yes. for this experience. And what was that like? Well, this the two couples that were there were, were women that we laugh a lot with. I mean, we're very, very close. And so Victoria... Um, We had one person who was the timer, one person who, you know, our nurse friend had, you know, a stethoscope and everything. And so someone handed Victoria the first drug and she had to drink that. And then we had to wait an hour. And during that hour, it was it was beautiful. I mean, it was very, very sad, but it was beautiful. We laughed. We joked. Um, someone was teasing her about fishing and how bad of a fisher person she was. And and she said, I can't believe you're dissing me on my deathbed. <laughs> and then um, and then we we said our goodbyes because we knew that at one at the hour mark, she had to drink the barbitol, and um, she drank drank it and she was gone in 20 minutes instead it, of 21 hours. Instead of 21 hours. Yeah. Which I imagine you were probably terrified of. I was. The idea that it would be stretched out. Right. Inevitably, there will be people listening to this who are still uncomfortable with Aiden dying and who think that it it can devalue life. Um, What would you tell them? Uh, I just feel that everybody has a right to their own ideas and that I think that this is something that for those people who are suffering a lot, that it is a legitimate um, decision. And and I just think that it's it's it was not it was scary for me, but it was so powerful and parts of it were so beautiful that. Um, I just, I just think that they need to step out of their, their little movie and, and look at it a different way. Could it have been beautiful if she had died, um, w- without the intervention, without the Aiden dying? Uh, no, it, it, she was looking at a very slow, painful, agonizing death and it would have been the same for me. I mean, it, it just would not have been peaceful. What needs to change to make this path easier for those who choose it? Well, I think one thing would be helpful is that there needs to be more word out about the process and that the availability. Um, I was pretty surprised to talk with people in the medical profession who, one, didn't know that the law had passed, and two, how it was administered. A lot of people think that you a doctor comes and injects you, and then you die. And people don't realize how long it takes to actually get through the process. And the fact that it has to be self-administered. Yes. Two doctors have to sign off. And there's no obligation for any physician to take part in this, we should be clear. Well, and not only that, but if you get the drug, you know, not not all drugs, not all not all the combos are three thirty three hundred dollars. 
So some of them are like $500. If you get the drug, it doesn't mean you have to take it. It just means you have it just in case you want to use it. Yeah, we've heard this in our own reporting, that just the having it can be empowering. Thank you for being with us, Cheryl, and sharing your perspective. Thank you very much. Her late wife, Victoria Erickson, used medical aid in dying last September. And uh, Cheryl reached out to CPR to share the struggles that they had with the process. Later this month, we're going to hear from a doctor who has prescribed medical aid in dying drugs. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. A new Colorado Public Radio podcast explores how a shooting 20 years ago changed the country. I want to bring you up to date at the shooting at Columbine High School. People of the community of Littleton, the prayers of the American people are with you. Now survivors of the attack have their own kids. I didn't really tell you about Columbine until you were 11 years old. And a whole scientific field has emerged to stop the next shooter. Search for Since Columbine wherever you get your podcasts. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. A progressive priority just survived a critical test at the state capitol by becoming a little less progressive. CPR's Sam Brash reports on changes to a plan for paid family medical leave. We want to make this work in Colorado to win paid family medical leave for all Colorado families. Supporters of the paid family leave plan rallied outside the Capitol yesterday. The lineup included Judith Marquez with 9 to 5 Colorado, a group that supports working women. She demanded lawmakers support the legislation, but also that they stop tinkering with it to try to appease the business community. The goalpost keeps moving and moving, and again, who will suffer are the working families that, you know, will not have a program good enough to provide access to everyone. After Democrats won both chambers last November, most thought this would be the year paid family family leave passed. But more moderate Democrats have resisted. That left sponsors proposing a reluctant rewrite during a crucial committee hearing yesterday. Democratic State Senator Faith Winter is a bill sponsor. Every single time we met a new concern, 10 more requests came in, and that's why we have numerous amendments. The basics of the plan stay the same. Take up the 12 weeks off for a medical condition to welcome an infant or to care for a family member, and you could request a portion of your lost wages from a statewide fund. What really changes in this new version of the bill is who pays into that fund and how much. Employers and employees would now split the cost 60-40 instead of 50-50. Companies that offer equivalent paid leave could opt out, and the start of the program would be delayed to 2023. That was enough to win over Democratic State Senator Nancy Todd, who was on the fence. I I would say I've been pretty critical, and every time I've asked a question, been given an answer. But business leaders remain unsatisfied. Lauren Furman, vice president with the Colorado Chamber of Commerce, says her group wants more tweaks, but also has a fundamental concern. Everybody will have to pay a fee, a tax, a premium, whatever you want to call it. But that doesn't mean that everybody is going to use the benefits. And there are still chances for even more changes. The bill is still early in the process, but sponsors say after yesterday's vote, the whole plan is a lot closer to reality. I'm Sam Brash, CPR News. Okay, right now you're hearing a group of molecules singing their song. A Colorado scientist translated their chemical formula into a series of notes, then added some background music.
Colin Campbell is a biological chemist. He has produced other music from and about science, and he performs these songs with a band called Rocky Canyon and the Flatiron Five. Hi, Colin. Hi. What inspired you to make music from science? Well, you know, I'm here in Colorado on a Fulbright Fellowship, and part of the Fulbright mission is just to do some cross-cultural communication, right? And I think coming on sabbatical, I should be thinking about look, what would I do if I was really living the dream? And if I was really <laughs> going to live the dream from my perspective as a mu- musician and a scientist, I would make some music about science. To blend these two. So yeah. what sort of science is your focus and what type of music do you traditionally play? Well, the type of science that I normally do research in the lab is based around uh, tissue engineering, trying to make tissue models of, of 3D cells where you could maybe test drugs on them rather than test drugs on animals. Oh, fascinating. Okay, and this can be done in a laboratory. Done in the lab, yeah, exactly. Okay, and then what kind of music have you tended to play? Well, I've over the years I've played the bagpipes in a pipe band, I've played the guitar in a rock band, and now I play um, with a friend of mine in Edinburgh in a little band where we do electronic stuff and some live stuff. I'm only a little disappointed you didn't bring the bagpipe. <laughs> uh, you, you point out that science has really played a role in the development of music itself. This sort of cuts both ways. Oh, yeah. What's an example that you point to where science has advanced music? Well, probably the best example I can think of is um, Walter Nernst, who got the Nobel Prize for the third law of thermodynamics around about 1928. He's the guy who, in the shed out the back of his house invented the electronic pickup, which would then go on to be the thing that enabled rock and roll by enabling the electric guitar. So without him, there would have been no Chuck Berry or Elvis or Jimi Hendrix. Okay, so you came here to do research and to teach. Why don't you tell us about producing the song Sweeping the Sky with your students? We'll hear it once you set it up here. Yeah, Sweeping the Sky was a, a, a great example of that sort of cross-cultural communication because I asked one of the students if they had some data that we could use and she showed me an image of the nucleus of a cell, which is where the DNA is in the yeah. cell. And I more or less drew a line across it and got a, a sort of cross-section of the picture where the bright bits were high and the low, the dark bits were low and turned that into a mel- melody so that you know the tops of the mountains were high notes and the, the valleys were low notes. And then just tried to build something around that. So I made a tune out of that. And then we had this great poem, um, which is called Carolyn Herschel's CV. And Carolyn Herschel was the first woman on record ever to be paid for doing science. And so we thought it was a great opportunity to get the voices of the women in the lab to use them to read the poem so that, you know, you could hear something about the diversity of scientists working in the lab with the music that came from the lab. Caroline Herschel, her CV. Nathan quantities of hogs and stockings. Saved as mother's laundry maid in Scalia. Endured smallpox and typhus. Was rescued by William and taken to England. These are sort of bits of her bio. Yeah. Oh, that's so cool. The poem is just sort of, you know her biography written out as if it was a CV. It occurs to me that what is true of music and what is true of science uh, is patterns. Yeah. 
and so that you can pick up on patterns in nature and then turn those into musical patterns. Do I have that right? Absolutely, yes. Okay. I'm glad I, I'm glad I got that. <laughs> <laughs> what would you say is your favorite of all the songs you've created? Oh, I, th- I think my favorite is the one that you started off with, the one which is called, R- R- it's based around this molecule RNAs P, which is um, fundamental to all life forms on the planet. And it, it's a really important molecule for, for turning um, the information in your DNA into proteins. Okay. And how do you turn that then into music? Help us understand how that becomes notes. Well, part of this molecule is is RNA, which is like DNA, you know, and, and scientifically you just think of that as like a, a long list of letters. Yeah. That's the way you write it out. And so I just took those letters and thought, well, I could make notes out of those. I could just say that this letter gives you that note and this letter gives you that note. So I tried that out. And first of all, actually, it matters which notes you pick because the first time I did it, I just got noise. Okay. Not, not really music. <laughs> so I, I sort of figured out that if you choose notes which are on a pentatonic scale which is fundamental to all music and probably fundamental to a lot of traditional music because it's sort of where music came from then you get a melody that where the notes sound nice together and then if you choose the right instrument to play them on you know they sound you know okay to your brain because if you play them on a piano funnily enough your piano expects patterns or your brain expects patterns that it would hear on a piano uh-huh. and for a reason that I don't really understand if you play them on something else like in this case an island guitar your brain's not looking for that pattern and it sounds okay and then I just tried to engage my musical brain and build some chords and some sounds around it that would offset the melody and make it sound nice did you say an Ireland guitar? a nylon guitar a nylon guitar yeah. Sometimes you have been the voice in these songs. Tell us about Atomic Love Poem. Atomic Love Poem, that's not my voice, I have to tell you. Oh, it's not? Okay. But but it's a much better voice than mine. It's the the voice of a guy that I've collaborated with in Scotland, Peter Nardini. Is he a scientist too? He's not. He's an artist. So when I was coming over here to, to do this, I thought, well, you know, I didn't really know what I was going to do. So I thought, well, if, if I, maybe if I asked Peter to write a poem about science, I could at least build some music around that. So uh, I asked him to do it, and he said, well, no, I don't know anything about science, so I can't do that. But then the next day he came back with this great poem, which starts off being about how molecules are everywhere and, you know, from a chemical – I'm a chemist, right? So. Yeah. Chemistry doesn't just happen in a lab. We're all made up of chemicals, and everything you see out the window is made out of chemicals. So I, th- I think that's a great message for the start of it. But Peter is a hopeless romantic. So by the end, it's turned into really a love poem about molecules and atoms. Molecules are in the air, just like you, they're everywhere. Up a tree, down a drain Among all the passengers On an airplane flying off Across the ocean That's full of molecules as well Some float about in slow motion Well, maybe not, but it's hard to tell Do you think you've achieved your mission? Are you bridging people Who normally would not talk to each other? Uh, absolutely. In, in making this stuff, um, I think 
I've talked to people who who I wouldn't have spoken to before, yeah, and got other people together who haven't spoken to each other before. But there's still a missing part of the mission, or it's not missing. It's going to happen next Tuesday, which is we're going to have an event where this music will be played, and for the electronic pieces of music, there'll be animations or visualizations to go with them. Ah, making this a full experience yeah, for the senses. And there will also be some live music. And some live music. Okay, uh, we'll tweet out the information at CPR Warner just a bit later. Colin, thanks for being with us. Thank you very much for inviting me. Colin Campbell, a biological chemist at CU Boulder right now. He makes music using chemical formulas to engage more people in science. I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. No, a molecule I'd rather be. Not that far behind you.